0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Let's bring in now uh, Lord Robert Skidelsky. He is Emeritus Professor of Political Economy at the University of Warwick, member of the House of Lords, uh, of course. And, uh, Lord Skidelsky, it's great to have you with us. Thanks very much for the time.
2: Thank you. Thank you for asking me. I, I don't think that,
1: uh, that Donald Trump would call himself a, a Keynesian, but in light of what, what he's proposing here, all of these tax cuts, uh, all of this infrastructure spending, is he a sort of neo-Keynesian? Is he, is he somewhat, does he have a foot in the school, let's say?
2: Look, no one ever, no one in the United States has ever called themselves a Keynesian, even when, even in the, in the heyday of the Keynesian economics, it was always the New Economics. Um, they don't like um, they don't like the thought that they're taking their economics from someone someone <laughs> else so um, of course he wouldn't have called himself a Keynesian but if you if you add up the package the tax cuts uh, and the infrastructure spending the implications are very Keynesian I mean of course you can argue about the detail who benefits from the, his particular tax proposals and so on but Broadly, it's a stimulus package, and uh, a a fiscal stimulus package, and that, in my way of thinking, is Keynesian.
1: He's talked about this on on the campaign trail in in broad strokes. Now he's been elected. There are a few months here until he takes office. What are you going to be looking for? What are you going to be listening for uh, as that package comes together?
2: well i'd i 'd be, I'd be um, obviously uh, w- listening for the detail of it um, and 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 of course you 'd have to gauge the political situation i mean it it goes against the the conservative instincts uh, the instincts of the of the republicans who have um, of course been very austerity minded and and he hasn 't repudiated austerity in other words he 's left everything quite ambiguous uh-huh. in terms of um, in terms of rhetoric, but the thrust of the policy w- is very, it was very clearly actually spelt out in the Financial Times by one of his um, um, leading advisors, uh, and I can't remember uh, his name. And he said, look, um, if this package causes the economy to grow, as I think it will, then the debt-GDP ratio will fall automatically. It is the way of balancing the budget that is to get the economy to grow more strongly. If it can grow by 3 4% a year rather than 1%, 2% a year, you're, you're, you're on the way to licking the, the budget problem. I, I, and that is total 100% Keynesianism. From where
1: you sit, does it, does it make sense? Uh, d- does it stand to make a difference uh, in the short term, if not the medium term, or the long term?
2: Well, all these all these policies have to be taken in medium term. In medium term, including say the inflation target. I mean, it's ridiculous to say you know as soon as the central bank does this, inflation rate will go up or down. Um, that that's not the point. The medium term target is important, but some of the programmes should be what's called shovel ready, and then the other the other thing is expectations, isn't it? I mean, once business knows that certain things are going to happen. Um, they will be able to gear up for them, and that will have an effect before uh, before they actually happen. So uh, the timing of the thing is not very, very clear, but there should be some short-term effects just through the expectation channel.
0: Uh, with us this morning, Robert Skidelsky here in our studios in London, of course his three volumes on John Maynard Keynes, but much more. His treatise after the crash, I thought, was just uh, wonderful, a book that conservatives and liberals alike uh, could uh, get much out of. We have so much for you this hour. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keene in London. Robert Skidelsky, you write of history. You write of political history. The conservatives uh, sometimes grumble at Skidelsky economics. I want to do a little Keynes and Hicks, ISLM theory, a lot of people, including President-elect Trump, are talking about moving the real economy curve, the IS curve, out with stimulus. In this distortion of interest rates that we have now, is the real economy curve attached to the
2: LM curve, attached to the money curve,
0: or are we so distorted those
2: models don't work? Well, we, we are distorted in, in, one, in one very important respect, which is once you got – once the policy rate hit the zero bound, almost you know, as low as it could go, you ran out of monetary policy tools. So you, you lost any ability by orthodox interest rate policy to affect the real economy. Uh, that tool just disappeared once you'd hit zero. So you had to do something else. Now I would have said at that point you should have. This is we're talking about 2010, 2011, okay. t- even a bit earlier. You should have gone for fiscal, um, and um, uh, but they didn't uh, because um, at that at that moment. The whole emphasis was on austerity. The whole fear was that governments would default, that they were in such big debt, uh, debt uh, crisis that you couldn't use fiscal policy, so they used monetary policy. And monetary policy was just printing money, essentially. Um, and it was trying to do the job of, of interest rate policy, but unfortunately it didn't work um, because um, you can, you know, as the saying is, you can bring the horse to water, but you can't actually make it drink. <clears throat> and and there were too many leaks in monetary policy for it to really revive the economy. Help
0: us with a liberal interpretation of how to deal with Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican president. I mean, we've seen that for a cup of coffee. I believe it was in the early 70s. It really harkens back almost to Coolidge in the 1920s, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, but Coolidge uh, didn't have the, the, the same ideas as, as Trump. Um, I mean, Coolidge was a fiscal conservative. Well, most people were fiscal conservatives in those days. Uh, I, my, my take on it is that a Republican Congress, even if it were wholly committed to austerity policy, <clears throat> would not be able to defy a president with a mandate to get the economy mm-hmm. moving in the way he promised. Uh, and and it's his own party after all. They'll give him they'll give him some leeway. They're bound well, to do that. Uh,
0: Robert Skidelsky with us in his book from a few years ago, folks. Keynes, the Return of the Master. I really can't say enough about it. It's a book that you can love to agree and disagree with. It is beautifully unlike his biographies of Keynes, which were what four thousand pages each. <laughs> Weekend reading for you, Tom. Old, That's right. They were
2: like Old Testament length. Let's exaggerate.
0: Cain's <laughs> a return of the master, highly readable, and I really, I'll put it out on Twitter here uh, today. Moving forward, a global dialogue, a national dialogue on uh, a most historic Tuesday. Uh, David, just remarkable. It was a week ago.
1: Hard to believe. It seems like it was a month you ago. Exactly. <laughs> it's been a long week. But for there sure.
0: are, we have someone that conservatives love to hate. He is the arch liberal, the great political economist of John Maynard Keynes, Robert Skidelsky in our studios uh, in London. How do you respond to conservatives that say, oh, there goes that liberal again? What can you take away from a conservative ethos, particularly an American conservative ethos, is Donald Trump comes to power?
2: Well, D- Donald Trump is a hybrid, isn't he? I mean, he's not uh, a classical conservative by any means. I don't know where he comes from. I mean, he's, how he's put together all the ideas um, that he seems to hold. Uh, he's drawn on a variety of sources. But I think he understands one thing, that um, uh, a lot of Americans felt betrayed by uh, the, the e- economic uh, policies of the last 10, 15 years. I mean, we know that in the data, don't we? I mean, American median incomes have fallen, real wages of vast swathe of the population um, are, are lower than they were even, even even, 15 years ago. So he knows that, and, I, and, 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 and he knows what, what, what the sources of discontent are. So he also knows you can't just have more of the same thing. Um, now, whether... Whether he genuinely believes that uh, a, a stimulus is is the right way um, to deal with 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 uh, with the problems of jobs, I don't know. But certainly that's what he said, and 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 that is not a cons- classic conservative position.
1: You write about Trumponomics in your most recent column for for Project Syndicate, and I was struck by the 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 call that you make here for I think Democrats here in the U.S. in particular to at least engage with. With Trumponomics, uh, you write that it might have some, some positive potential. Uh, you're saying you don't reject it out of hand.
2: No, and neither, neither did, did Bernie Sanders and neither does Joe Stiglitz. I mean, all these people say, look, there are good, good things here in the program. Let's make it better. Now, they don't therefore commit to all the other things that Trump has disgracefully stood for. Of course they don't. But, I mean, here's something you can work on and let's try and make it work. I think, I think that's only sensible. Barring, barring some totally unforeseen event, he's going to be president for the next four years. You've got to try and make sure the policy works.
1: We were speaking with, uh, with Neil Ferguson a couple of days ago, and he said very explicitly, very concisely, this is not the 1930s. Yeah. From, from your vantage, uh, with your historical perspective, give us the, the analog. Is that an appropriate analog uh, to, to look back at the 1930s?
2: Well, it, it's, it's appropriate in the sense that there's this feeling that um, uh, an, uh, an existing order is, is, is in a state of profound crisis. But there are many, many differences, and, and I think one or two of those differences are very, very important. First of all, there's a constitution in the United States that limits the power of the president. The president may seem all-powerful abroad, but at home the president is not all-powerful. There was nothing in the Weimar Constitution of Germany to, to limit Hitler's power domestically. So, I mean, that's one very, very important difference. The second is that the crisis was <coughs> much worse in the 1930s than it is um, today, and it came out of the most uh, savage war um, of modern mm-hmm. times. Now, all that is, is lacking. So actually, the feeling is, is not nearly as despondent or angry uh, as it mm-hmm. was um, in, in, in that period. And I think we've got to bear that in mind, because, I mean, when, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've been used to something that's so tranquil, really, right. that any change, you know, strikes us. 30 seconds,
0: uh, Lord Skidelsky. When does labor get its act together in England? <laughs> What is uh, the Labour Party? They're waiting for you to come to the rescue.
2: There you, there you well, mm-hmm. it first got its act together in 1945. They are. They are. Wa- they are, of course, on, on the same uh, uh, on the same wave uh, uh, f- as far as fiscal policy is concerned. They've come out against austerity. They should have come out against austerity five years ago. They didn't. But now they are. They're fully signed up to an infrastructure program mm-hmm. um, and and not um, uh, uh, not placing priority on deficit reduction. Thank
0: you so much for coming in today to our world headquarters. Robert Skidelsky, folks, I put out on Twitter his uh, wonderful book on Keynes, A Return of the Master, and looking at uh, stimulus, which was remarkably prescient in 2010 uh, as we look at both candidates in the US, Secretary Clinton and Mr. Trump, talking up stimulus. And of course, President-elect Trump will try to put that into effect. Be a good time to bring in Luigi Zingales of the Booth School in Chicago. Um, as a gentleman of Italian persuasion, he has written brilliantly on the culture and fabric of America. Uh, Professor Zingales, after a Trump victory, can a president somehow boost consumption in Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX? Can any given president move the C? Uh...
3: Certainly, a massive uh, sort of reduction in taxes could boost C. Um, also, you can increase uh, G, which is government expenditure. I think Trump has announced uh, from the very first beginning that he's going to boost infrastructure spending. So I think he's going to do it. And he's going to spend more in defense. So I think everything is suggesting a higher deficit and uh, probably higher inflation.
1: How much of this is, is a continuum? Do you see this as a continuum, going from the Brexit vote to the referendum in Colombia to the US president election and now the, the, the referendum in Italy, all, all part and parcel of the same thing?
3: I think that uh, the Brexit vote and the Trump vote are indeed very similar because uh, they represent uh, a revolt of voters against uh, an economic system that doesn't seem to benefit them sufficiently. <clears throat> I think that the Italian story is, is quite different. I think this referendum is a self-inflicted wound. Uh, Renzi could have avoided having a ref- referendum. He thought he could win big time, and now he finds himself sort of at the risk of losing. Now, no. the referendum. It- Sorry.
0: Go ahead. Well, let me let me I I want to frame this up here, folks. Professor Zingales, of course, at Booth School, uh, but he's been more than cordial with us over the years to speak of his Italian economy. And what has changed, David Gura, is our interview yesterday with David Folkerts Landau, an esteemed uh, writer of economic papers with Michael Dooley and Peter Garber. And here's Folkerts Landau yesterday heatedly speaking of the importance of the Italian referendum, not only folks for all of Italy, but all of Europe, and indeed, the global economy. Professor Zingales, do you agree with Dr. Fulkerts Landau that this is a time of moment for your Italy?
3: Uh, Yes and no, in a sense. I want to emphasize that the referendum is about some rather technical aspects of the Constitution, that uh, don't mean much. Uh, However, uh, it is perceived as a moment in which uh, Renzi takes his uh, his government, and he might end up losing, and could be the spark in a room full of gasoline. I think that uh, the Italian situation has been dire for a long time. Uh, The problem has been sort of uh, Uh, anesthetized by Draghi and the quantitative easing, uh, but it's not been resolved. And uh, sooner or later, we have to take out uh, the anesthesia and uh, the problem will resurface. Whether this is about uh, to to take place uh, uh, on December 4th or a little bit later, that I don't know. But uh, sooner or later will take place.
1: Help us understand what happens here if this if this referendum do, does not pass. What what are the next steps here for for Mr. Renzi?
3: So he announced that if uh, he will lose the uh, the referendum, he will resign. Now, unfortunately, I don't have uh, so much confidence that he will follow through on his war. Unfortunately, I don't know. But the the, the tradition of Italian politicians is not like the one of. Uh, Uh, British politicians, that when they say something, they follow through, like Cameron. (laughs) I think that uh, uh, the most likely scenario is that uh, either Renzi will stay in power anyway, or there will be a coalitional government very similar to the existing one with some other figurehead. I don't think that there will be a dramatic change in anything. Uh, However, it will make uh, uh, Italy look less stable, and as I said, this
1: could be the spark. David Gura here in New York, Tom Keen in London this week, Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. A pleasure to have with us Luigi Zingales, Robert McCormick, Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the Booth School at the University of Chicago. We were talking about uh, the Italian referendum, among other things, and there is a lot to talk about here. It strikes me that a thread running through uh, that vote, the U.S. presidential election, the vote in Colombia, the the vote in the U.K. a few months back as well, Luigi, uh, is this notion of inclusion. There's been a lot of talk about including more people uh, in economic success. What's it going to take to bring that from being lip service, talking about inclusion, to actually doing something about it in light of what we've seen here?
3: Um, let me first say that uh, I think the Italian referendum is different because, Italy did not have any economic success in the last 20 years. So uh, before a problem of inclusion, in Italy, there is a problem of creation. Uh Uh, In in the United States and uh, Great Britain, there is a problem of inclusion. And the question is uh, how to make uh, – first of all, how to give opportunities to everybody. I think that some people feel uh, they're left out, and they are. If you don't have a decent uh, primary and secondary education, you start from uh, such a – Uh, disadvantage that is very hard to to make up in life. The second is uh, I think there there is an increase in industry concentration that brings sort of uh, higher prices that uh, damage consumers. So uh, I think adding an agenda of uh, enforcing more antitrust could be very beneficial to spread the benefits of innovation to everybody. And uh, Trump has sort of paid lip service to this idea but uh, I doubt he's going to actually implement it once uh, he's in office.
1: I think we last spoke after uh, John Stumpf stepped down from from Wells Fargo as as CEO. We were talking a bit about banking regulation. Now that the election is over with, forecast out a bit for us here. The news yesterday that Mary Jo White, the chair of the SEC, is going to step down at the end of President Obama's uh, term. What does the regulatory landscape look like? You bring up antitrust. Certainly there are a number of mergers here uh, uh, waiting for for a stamp of approval or a, a rejection from the Department of Justice.
3: I think that, uh, again, you have to make a forecast of which Trump we're going to see in action as a president. I think Trump has at least two images. One is the populist image that Mm. actually talks against the AT&T and Time Warner merger, uh, the one that sort of uh, seemed to be changing this attitude. And then we have the more traditional sort of – Uh, Republican conservative who says we should get rid of all this regulation and we should let firms do whatever they want and I think at the end of the day probably the second one would prevail not the first one.
0: Luigi help me here with amplitude. Lawrence Summers writing in the FT I believe it was uh, the other day on okay you can have stimulus but how much is enough I know the University of Michigan's done a lot of study on this, Matt Shapiro, and I would assume out of Booth School, you've done it as well. Do we underestimate how much stimulus it takes to move the needle, Mm. to shift the IS curve?
3: Actually, honestly, I think that probably in the United States, we are at the wrong uh, moment in the cycle to stimulate the economy. Uh, I think that uh, this is not a decision that comes from economics. This is a decision that comes from politics in order to try to give an opportunity in the job to uh, middle-class, uneducated uh, white folks who voted for Trump. And uh, probably there are better ways to deal with the problem, but this is certainly the simplest one.
1: How how much does composition matter? Again, the, the thing is so inchoate right now. Uh, we've heard about tax cuts. We've heard about $500 billion, up to a trillion dollars here. Uh, Tom asks about size. W- what uh, in the medium term makes a difference compositionally?
3: Uh, I think that uh, actually focusing on defense and construction is what probably will uh, bring the biggest bang for the buck because both – of these activities have a huge uh, US content, I would say probably uh, almost hundred percent US content. Anything other form of stimulus uh, increase consumption, but consumption is also uh, import and then the impact on the economy will be different. So I, I think that uh, partly for ideological reasons but partly for economic reasons, the, the stimulus will be focused on these two particular sectors. So the impact I think will be quite big.
1: Amid all of this uncertainty about policy, uh, are the looming questions about the, the individuals Donald Trump is going to appoint to key jobs in his administration, including Treasury Secretary. Uh, in this day and age, what is the, the role of the Treasury Secretary? Do we place particular importance on him in this administration uh, as doing more here to, to, guide, to craft and to guide uh, economic policy?
3: Well, uh, certainly, I think that uh, uh, Trump is not particularly experienced in economic economic policy, and I use like a British understatement. Uh So he will depend very heavily on his advisors, and the people who are in in place now have a gigantic opportunity of shaping the agenda. So I think that uh, the personality and the track record uh, of the people chosen is very important.
0: You know, Luigi, I, I, I look at all this in the historic moment, What it's about is Republican, Republican, Republican. Give us your thoughts, and particularly with your wonderful book on capitalism, about a gridlock-free Washington, or is that a fiction?
3: No, I think that uh, probably we're going to have a short period of uh, uh, unity in, in Washington if we don't have it now then people will revolt, mm. and rightly so. There is a united government, and so they better reconcile. And And I think that uh, uh, if there is one positive thing to be said about Trump is that he's experiencing deals. So I think he's going to uh, go with the way to have a deals that make him look good at this upfront. and And also the, the Republican establishment desperately need a deal. Uh, I think that uh, not, not approving... Any package that uh, Trump proposes will make uh, the senators and the representatives uh, in the Republican side look like idiots, because they have opposed Obama for eight years, and now they oppose also this president and said, what do you want? So I think that we are poised for a deal. The question is how good this deal will be uh, in the short and in the long term.
1: Yeah, I think of what Jim Bullard of the the St. Louis Fed a couple of days uh, after the election about how... Uh, you know, at, le- at least the prospects for action in Congress are higher than they were, and and of course that's that's coming from a very low. There was a very low bar before then, but let me ask you lastly here, just when you look at the the agenda, we've talked about the prospects for for a big infrastructure package. Donald Trump has talked about tax reform with real seriousness. So has uh, House Speaker Paul Paul Ryan. What's the likelihood of that happening? Big corporate tax reform, and 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 what else from the the economic agenda laid out on the campaign trail? Do you think we could see movement on here uh, in the next Congress?
3: I expect a reduction in corporate taxes. Uh, the question is, uh, uh, what is the effect of this? In a sense, if uh, this reduction in tax rate is joined by an increase in, in the base, an increase in, the, uh, in enforcement, a reduction, reduction, and so on and so forth, this could be a very good thing. If <coughs> simply so that there's a slashing of the rate, this is going to create a, a, a gigantic hole in, in the deficit, and sooner or later we're going to have to pay for that.
0: Yeah, I look, Luigi. At I guess the economics of where we are, and clearly the idea that within the new populism, culture and demographics and populism subsume all in economics. I don't buy it for a minute. The summary here, before we let you go, is an absolute primal scream for economic growth. It's my chart of the year, folks. From essentially four percent down to two percent real GDP. Where does the economic growth come from? if from anything but investment and can policy spur investment? Uh,
3: I think that uh, there will be some uh, increase in investment, not only in infrastructure, but also private investment. I think that uh, uh, the I'm pretty sure that Trump will do something to bring back the money that corporations have abroad. And and so there will be a moment in which corporations are flash with even more money and will be under under strong pressure to invest it. So I think that uh, in the short term, we're going to have a boost in investments. Whether this will last long term remains to be seen.
0: Luigi Zingales, thank you so much. He's with the Booth School of Chicago. I'll tell you, David, it's just extraordinary to talk to Luigi Zingales mm-hmm. about the U.S. and his Italy. Italy's been front and center here, starting with Folkert's Landau. Uh, yesterday, It seems to be the topic of discussion, maybe more than Brexit.
1: A lot of talk about what's happening in the Netherlands next. I mean, there we have a, a host of these uh, of, of these referendum votes coming up in Europe.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. There's going to be a real geographical feel, but then it all goes back to here, at least to London. And I would assume my observation that London uh, certainly surprising the skeptics and doing better mm. than good. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.
1: In a couple of days, the Fed chair, Janet Yellen, will head up to Capitol Hill to testify before the Joint Economic Committee. Uh, and I wonder the degree to which she will be asked about uh, the effects of this election uh, on the economy so far as we've felt them uh, thus far. Gary Stern is the former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Kind enough to join us here uh, in the studio. Nice to see you. Good morning. What do you expect to hear from from Janet Yellen? We've seen these these. Undulations, these massive moves, and the market's quieting a, a bit here today. Uh, wh- what do you expect she'll face when she sits at that table on Thursday morning?
4: Well, I think Janet herself is likely to be quite cautious because, you know, it's early days, uh, and while, and talk is cheap. And so there's, there's lots of ideas floating around, but, uh, but, you know, how many of those ideas actually turn into action and policy and so forth remains to be seen. Um, So that's what I expect from her. I suppose, you know, if I were asking her questions, I'd want to get a feel for, you know, what she thinks is appropriate for the Federal Reserve. Let's assume that there is a significant tax cut. Let's assume there's a significant increase in federal spending on infrastructure, possibly on defense, et cetera. Um, You know, what's the appropriate Fed policy Uh, under those circumstances, or at least at a minimum, how does she think they will affect the economy? How does she think they'll affect the budget deficit, et cetera, et cetera? At least that's where I'd start.
1: How much uh, uh, assuming is going on inside the Eccles building right now? We hear so much about the the potential for policy, new policy from from uh, President-elect Donald Trump. We haven't seen much in the way of details yet. Does that force caution or force, as you're saying here, uh, assumption, planning out uh, what all the scenarios might be? Well,
4: in some sense, both uh because first of all the fed is inherently a cautious yes, institution let's let's not forget that but uh the fed you know the fed has some quite sophisticated economic models that enables them to analyze the effects of of various actions and they can run as many scenarios as they feel like so you know they're not constrained in in terms of their analytical capabilities at all uh nor are they constrained in bringing you know, independent judgment and experience to all this. The, the problem they face, as we uh, commented earlier, is, you know, at this stage, there are lots of things out there floating around. Uh, nothing is very concrete. We don't even know at this point, of course, who the players are going mm-hmm. to be for, from the administration side for the most part. So, you know, that's why I think while the Fed can can run infinite numbers of scenarios, they're going to be cautious about placing any bets at this point. I, I would think they would avoid uh, bet placing.
0: Gary, I would suggest that you have been one of the great, great thinkers of this Fed and, of course, uh, with a wonderful idea that you were not infected in Washington and had the sense to stay in Minneapolis, uh, that being a good thing. What is our central economics now? Is this a Phillips curve Fed? Is this a Fed that is unorthodox? Or is this a Fed, as Stanley Fisher lectured at the Economic Club of New York a couple weeks ago, is this a Fed just searching for... A conventional ISLM model.
4: Well, I I think uh, I think if I were trying to describe it, Tom, I would say this is a Phillips curve Fed, but people are con- confront confronted with you know high employment and low inflation. People yeah. have to be questioning the <clears throat> viability of of that approach, and um, uh, so you know I guess I would say it's it's probably a Phillips curve Fed with only modest conviction about that. And I think your reference to ISLM, you know, is obviously a starting point if you start to think about fiscal stimulus, but it's not necessarily the ending point. And the reason I would say it's not the ending point is that I think there's a a real difference between what I would call responsible or judicious fiscal stimulus and fiscal stimulus that is so outsized and and yeah. and and prospective federal budget deficits are so large for so long, that you know they're perverse, and you don't you don't get as much stimulus in fact out of it as you might expect. You get a a a, a reaction that says, "Boy, this doesn't look sustainable to us. This is trouble," and and so you know I'm hopeful that fiscal stimulus will be responsible. But I'm not convinced at this point right. that it will be.
0: Is the outcome here of what's called a more assertive Republican House, Senate and president, that this is a Federal Reserve that becomes ever more ex post, that they have to
4: wait and wait for the evidence and ever more the institution reacts after the fact? Well, that clearly has been the uh, the stance. And I don't get the sense that preemptive action is something that a majority of Fed policymakers are in favor of right now and I think they'd have trouble justifying it yeah. in, in any event um you know it it hasn't I in defense of what they've been doing it hasn't worked out badly so far I, I think we have to admit that uh, we've seen very healthy gains in employment for several years now inflation has remained low I mean the fed in many ways could declare victory um, obviously they're 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 not going to do that and start pounding their chests or pounding on the table uh, because that'll lead to that'll lead to trouble for sure. But um, uh, you know, I think the the current approach has has uh, served us well to date, and maybe the reason for that is of course, it's come out on top of a major financial crisis. As the crisis continues to fade into the background, uh, I think the Fed is going to have to reassess uh, their approach. Uh, I don't think that necessarily means they'll get real aggressive, but I think it does mean they're going to have to reassess the approach because the hangover from the financial crisis is clearly diminishing.
1: What does this uh, Federal Reserve look like in, in 2018? Uh, if Janet Yellen doesn't stick around, you, there's a, a huge opportunity here for the president-elect to pick as many as five uh, new people at the Fed. Uh, there are these calls for a more rules-based system by members of, of Congress. What does the Fed look like in a couple of years?
4: Well, I think you're right. There'll be new players for sure. And presumably, I don't know how how ideological they'll be, but there'll be presumably people that the Republican majority – and the new administration are comfortable with. um, Whether that'll go to a rules-based approach, I think that issue will be on the table and will clearly be on the table and will stay on the table. Whether it gets resolved, I doubt it'll get resolved in the next two years. Whether it'll get resolved, say, in the next four or five, that will depend, Your, your question is right on target, that'll depend on who the players are and whether they... Embrace if the Fed embra- if the Fed policymakers the Board of Governors embraces a, a rule rules based approach, my guess is they won't have any trouble getting Congress to go along. If they oppose it, yeah, you know, then it's going to be a it's going to be more of what we've had recently. Lots of disagreement, but you know, people on both sides of the question. We need lower rates. We need higher rates. We need rules. We don't need rules. Da 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 da.
1: Some news here crossing the Bloomberg I want to get in here. VW said to agree to, with regulators to fix about 60,000 diesel cars. Uh, these are the tainted three-liter cars that uh, have been the subject of much scrutiny and controversy. VW said to have avoided about $4 billion in paying to buy back all of those cars. Again, VW going to fix them. That news crossing the Bloomberg right now. We're here with Gary Stern, uh, former president CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of, of Minneapolis. Let me ask you uh, lastly here about Minnesota. We saw in the run-up to the election... Donald Trump saying the state was solidly uh, in play, fighting for it when when uh, a lot of pollsters thought that was was folly. What was it that resonated uh, in Minnesota from what Donald Trump had to say uh, economically?
4: Well, it's certainly true, I think, that Minnesota turned out to the election. There turned out to be closer between uh, uh, Trump and and, uh, Clinton than expected. And I think uh, part of it was the same thing you see nationally. That is, he res- his message resonates with people in rural areas, in smaller towns, people who feel they haven't shared in um, the be- benefits of the economic growth and the improvement of the economy that we've had since the crisis, and maybe uh, for a decade or more. Uh, part of it is also that Minnesota, which used to be a very solidly democratic state, you know the the suburbs and exurbs around Minneapolis, I think are are more Republican than um, than, expect, than the national press realizes uh-huh. and are more inclined to vote Republican at least on occasion. and And I think that's just demographics and a nature of the the people who work and live in those areas. And uh, I don't think there's anything unique about Minnesota. I think that's what you see.
1: Gary, thank you very much. Gary Stern there, former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, joining us here uh, in the studios uh, in New York. Janet Yellen, of course, preparing to head to Capitol Hill on Thursday to testify before the U.S. Joint Economic Committee.
0: Our guest uh, that we hope to go to here in a moment is a very special guest, Jean-Claude Trichet. You've heard me say many times, folks, is the engineer from Nancy. Uh, He has the most original economics. It has always the feeling of control and the plug-in of engineering, the thinking of engineering. And that's something that we value uh, uh, greatly. Mr. Trichet, of course, coming after Mr. Doisenberg and before uh, Mr. Draghi. Is a president of the European Central Bank, as someone who managed the crisis. There was accolade and there was criticism, and now joining us, Jean-Claude Trichet. On my trip to London, uh, Mr. Trichet, and good morning. My trip to London, clearly the talk is of Italy. How urgent is the moment for an Italy that must come to grip with slow economic growth?
5: Well, I, I think, really, that uh Italy is a conundrum, because on the one hand you have a very, very solid manufacturing sector, which is keeping its market share quite well, and uh, can be compared really to uh, what you see in Austria and uh, the south of Germany. And on the other hand, you have this uh, long-standing stagnation of the economy. I can explain that Only because mismanagement in part of Italy, particularly, I would say, public management in the south of Italy is absorbing uh, the uh, surplus that uh, Italy is producing in its manufacturing sector. So uh, they they have really to embark on a very solid management of the uh, public Mm -hmm. side, if I may, of the economy. And, uh, and I trust that it is possible, but it's difficult. But it calls for structural reforms, and it calls for, uh, for yeah. eliminating uh, largely you know, the uh, kind of clientelism which exists in, mm-hmm. uh, in the Italy, and particularly in the South.
0: And Mr. Trichet, I've always kidded you about your engineering and your foundation approach to economics. How can we have a European economics amid negative rates. Do you know where the risk-free rate is? David Gurr and I are going in search of it, and we can't find it. Is the risk-free rate out there somewhere?
5: Well, it is clear that very low rates for a very long period of time, even if necessary from the, uh, I would say, economic standpoint and from the looking at uh, the, the real equilibrium rate standpoint which are very very low or even negative in some cases including uh, I would say in all uh, advanced economy uh, despite the necessity of having these negative uh, rates in some cases not only as you know in the uh, Euro area but also in Switzerland also in Sweden also in Denmark and also in Japan of course uh, they there are negative consequences that we have to fully take into account so In my opinion, all taken into account, the advantages were superior to the uh, inconveniences and to the uh, drawbacks. But of course, it cannot last forever. So I hope very much that we will get out of that situation and have, which is very important, of course, uh, inflation expectations going back to the present definition of price stability, which is the same, by the way, in Europe, in the US, in Japan, namely, around 2%, as we say in Europe, uh, uh, below 2%, but very close to 2%. So that, that is the key, of mm. course. Uh, the key is really that uh, the central banks in their present fight will succeed. And if they succeed, then we can get out of this uh, difficult, uh, I would say, period, which has, of course, a lot of drawbacks.
1: We've reached you in Frankfurt, uh, where it's Euro Finance Week. Give us a sense of, of how much of the conversation has been consumed with talk about the transition here in the U.S. Uh, 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 Donald Trump coming in as, as president, how, how, how much of the conversation is focused on that and the effect that that will have on Europe and indeed on, on the ECB's plans?
5: I think, of course, it is something which is of the essence uh, because the U.S. is the most important uh, country uh, economically because the U.S. has uh, an influence which is... Uh, Uh, very very important because it clearly demonstrates that there is a level of frustration of the people and of the middle class in the advanced economy which is shared very largely not only in the UK but also in the US and certainly in many European countries so it is it is something which is very important I would say both for political reasons and also for uh, economic reasons because the, the, the market are expecting a new course of action We will see. I mean, we have to be very, very prudent. Uh, uh, You might remember the uh, result of the vote was considered very negatively, then very positively in some respect. I think we have to be cautious, prudent uh, on the economic side, uh, on the monetary side, on the exchange rate side. Uh, Things are not moving that, you know, rapidly and so forth. So I remain myself very prudent. Mm. But what is absolutely clear is that we are in a universe where because of uh, the competition of the emerging economies, right. because of the rapidity of the surge of technology, right. we have a frustration, we have a stress of our people. Well,
0: uh, Minister, thank you so much, Jean-Claude Trichet, this morning from Europe. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.